We are on verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 8. Let's see what verse 19 said. I'll start with verse 18 at the beginning of a sentence here. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. There's that phrase again which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. And it says in verse 20, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. So now is another concept as this unfolds for us here about money and how money is to be understood and handled, and how gifts from the Lord's people are to be understood and handled. We've looked at quite a few things already in the first 19 verses of this chapter. But here is another concept, that we need to be careful in how we administer things as far as money that's been given by Christians for purposes of the gospel, because... The misuse of money is a prime way in which Christianity and the message of the gospel can easily be discredited. Right? And a study of church history, a careful study of church history, reveals that this has gone on, this discrediting of the church because of the abuse of money, has gone on for centuries and centuries, and in fact, was one of the major causes of the Reformation. I think, I think you have to differentiate between Paul was teaching a true gospel, and he didn't want the true gospel discredited, and what we see oftentimes with the Benny Hins and the faith and wealth gospel and the things that they're talking about, it's a crummy gospel or a defective gospel or a, a diluted gospel that's actually getting discredited by the actions of the guy that's preaching it because they're consistently bad. Yeah. What Paul's talking about is he has the true gospel and he doesn't want to be mingled with the, the, these guys right. that are preaching for wealth. That's true. I agree. We need to have the true gospel and we need to not discredit it by misuse of money. Now, why is it so often that money's been misused and abused? Well, greed, human nature, human fallenness. We either are doing things to mitigate our fleshly nature, or we're not. And if we're not mitigating it, it will find expression in bad ways. And if one of the ways that our fleshly nature will find expression, if it's not mitigated, is in the abuse of money. So Paul, knowing how easily that can happen, said that he was taking precautions so that the gospel that Paul preached would not be discredited. Now, how could it have been discredited? Well, for one thing, we're probably talking about a lot of money because he was taking this offering for some years, actually. He talked about it in 1 Corinthians, talks about it in Romans, it talks about it in Acts, it talks about it in 2 Corinthians. The money was gathered from Asia Minor, from Macedonia, from Achaia. So 
there was probably a large sum of money by the time it was all over. And in those days, the only way in which money could go from one place to another was to physically carry it. To physically carry it in a spendable form, like gold and silver, right? So therefore, Paul was traveling with money that could easily be abused. Okay, so therefore he found other persons whose reputation in the gospel was solid, who could travel with him with this money to guarantee that nothing untoward or shady would happen with it, that this money would become a blessing to the poor saints in Judea and not a cause for some sort of scandal. Now, as I was saying, unfortunately, throughout church history, this has been not the case. And the whole selling of indulgences, the, the massive wealth that was accumulated by Rome, created levels of corruption that were unbelievable. And Luther, before he even understood the true gospel, became outraged at the abuse of the system that he was in, the abusiveness of the system and the abusiveness of, uh, that w- was done through money. Like, couldn't you also say if, if you see an abuse of money, that it's very likely that uh, the, the message itself is defective? Or the messenger. The mes- the, either the messenger or the message, because yeah. if you preach a defective message, you're going to have greed that comes uh, I mean, that's what's happening in Mac Hammond's church right now. He's being investigated for all kinds of, of uh, issues on, on a monetary basis. And if you focus that, your message on that, it's not surprising that that's yeah. what works out in the congregation. That's true. But, but it's so much, it's, it's widespread. The, the problems, just listening to, to many of you, I mean, we, right now in this congregation, we're represented by a lot of people from all different versions of evangelicalism. From, from Charismatic, Pentecostal, Baptist, E-Free, Missionary Alliance, Covenant. I mean, I've talked to people from about every kind of background imaginable that have come here because they're fleeing from something that really wasn't gospel-centric the way it should be, for one reason or another. And one of the consistent stories I've heard, not universally, but consistent, was the misuse of money going on. And huge fundraising projects to make lavish buildings and, and what have you. And a lot of people were saying the money, they needed money, 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 but, but they didn't seem to be that concerned about preaching the gospel. And, and so I think that there's always a, pro, there's a problem lurking that we have to be careful about. Now, the gospel, the number one mitigating thing that will keep us, uh, we can all say, but by the grace of God, there go I, all right, and we can't claim to be better than anybody else. And so, if we don't fall into some bad situation, we have to give the glory to God that He's been gracious to us. All right. Now, at the heart of the problem, in my opinion, where we get cleared out of the nitty-gritty, what the problem is, is whenever the means of grace are removed from the church then you lose your mitigating influence. And when you lose your mitigating, mitigating meaning restraining our own natural fleshly tendencies. 
Okay, putting the fear of God in us, giving us the desire to walk in the Spirit and to do things in a way that would glorify God. All of that comes to us not because we're morally superior to everybody around us or that we're a better version of Christian, because we're not. All of that comes to us by God's grace. Grace alone. But God has means. And so the means of grace are the proclamation of the gospel for the conversion of the lost and the teaching of the word of God for the sanctifying of the saved and the fellowship that we have together as we corporately fellowship around the apostles' teaching and breaking bread and prayer, Acts 2.42. When those things are happening in faith, according to the way the Lord has required and instituted, God will mitigate these things. Does that mean we can't ever possibly have a scandal? No. We have to be circumspect, even under the means of grace. We have to always be doing what Paul says. Now, how, now how did Paul deal with that? Because Paul had the right gospel, and he had godly people, but how did he deal with it? Well, he, he found people to be in charge of thing of money so that he wasn't. And those people were people who he said, what did he say about that one guy? Whose fame, they were gospel. Yeah, verse 18. Whose fame and the things of the gospel is spread through all the churches. So the churches would recognize the person here who's unnamed as someone whose issue in his heart and mind is the gospel itself. Literally, it says, whose praise is in the gospel, and his passion was to preach the gospel. There's somebody who's looking after the money. Not Paul. Not that Paul, because he didn't want to be anybody. They're already trying to discredit him. If you read First, Second Corinthians, he had enemies galore. They were trying to discredit Paul any way they could. So he wanted to not give them any stick to beat them with. All right? So... That's an important lesson. Now, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration. The word administration, diaconeo, where we get our word deacon, is, which is the noun form. This is a verb. Diaconeo, to serve, literally means to serve or to minister. To serve this lavish. The word for generous there means could be translated lavish. So there was a very, very... How would you see it? A large amount of money in that world, in that day and age. And so Paul wanted to preserve the reputation, a reputation for integrity. A reputation for integrity. Dick, could you look up a verse? Ephesians 5.15, Dick. <laughs> How many money scandals have we had in America in the last 30 years? In the name of God. How many money scandals? I'm trying to think. Remember the, remember the PTL one where this guy went to jail? Oh, yeah. There was Oral Roberts. Yeah. I'm just thinking about money. You have PTL where there there's millions and millions of dollars absconded from people under false pretense. You had Oral Roberts who claimed that God was holding him hostage. <laughs> yeah. And he made all these strange claims that then some millionaire came up with the money and then the thing never happened anyhow. The whole thing was just, what's that? Robert Tilton. Yeah, Robert Tilton. This guy was scamming widows out of their money. Yeah, that's right, Richard Roberts. 
uh, was got caught scamming money and living lavish lifestyle off of gifts. Yeah, there's all of these scandals. All these scandals. What's that? <laughs> That's, he said Bethel Seminary scamming people out of their tuition money under the pretense under the pretense they're actually getting a theological education. And anybody wants to know about that, just ask Eric. Eric, I was with Eric. We went in and said, okay, here's the statement of faith. Here's what this institution says it believes. Here's the theology books we're actually studying. They have absolutely nothing to do with each other. So I came here, says Eric, to study actual Christian theology. All right, I would like to learn things that Christians throughout history have studied. And, and I had my notes from 1992. I opened them up. And I said, well, look at what we studied in 1992. Here's the Lord's Supper. Here's baptism. Here's theories of the atonement. Here's justification. Here's, that's what we studied. Why can't we study stuff like that in seminary? And then the guy's eyes glaze over. And so finally he says to Eric, how much money do you want back? Basically, the answer was, we are not going to teach Christian theology, and we're not going to be bullied into it. But they gave him part of his money back for that class. But what were they teaching? Postmodern theories. Uh, They were getting the, the guy, the teacher, got his Christology, Doctrine of Christ, from evolutionary biology. And he got other theories out of quantum physics. And so I asked Eric about it. Eric says, nobody told me before I came to this seminary that I had to go to the U and get a degree in quantum physics before I could study theology. I thought when you study theology, you study it from the Bible. Well, I guess that was the old way. Okay. (laughs) Good point. Okay, uh, Ephesians 4.15. You said 5.15. Which one do you want? Take your pick. Five. <laughs> Getting snippy already every here. Every Sunday. <laughs> Take okay, your pick. Five fifteen. Okay. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Okay. Be careful how you walk. Be careful how you walk. Then in verse. So now we can go to verse twenty-one. For we have regard. Notice this. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Now, what's the difference between having regard for what's honorable in the sight of men and having the fear of man or to be men-pleasers? What's the difference? I mean, the Bible warns us not to be men-pleasers and not to have the fear of men, but here it says to have regard for what's honorable. Anybody want to describe the difference? Well, I'm looking at at 2 Corinthians 8.21, about having honorable what's, what's in the, not only the sight of the Lord, but the sight of men. And I'm going to reference other passages. For example, qualification for elders. In 1 Timothy 3, doesn't it say that an elder has to have, Be respected in the have the respect of the people around? Okay, so, okay, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that having regard in the sight of men, even pagans think is an honorable thing not to steal and an honorable thing to be selfless in, in giving. They don't want to do it themselves and that the mitigating influence isn't there, but they hold it in honor. And it's consistent with what Paul said about the 
qualifications of an elder. If everybody in the community believes the guy's a, 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 a schmuck and dishonest, you wouldn't want him as an elder in your church because they probably have a better idea of what he is than, yeah. than what you see go, in church. Go around and talk to the guy's neighbors up and down the block and see what they think about him. And they think, well, this guy, I wouldn't trust him with my dog. Uh, then he's probably not elder material. Yes. The other part is if we're talking about what's going on in a church, particularly when you're dealing with money, that word transparency that we're hearing a lot about lately yeah. should be true of a church. Okay. It should be very open. Right. And that would be honorable in the sight of men. Because even though the whole culture is corrupt, right, and we live in a fallen world, what Keith says is true, and that is that even in the corrupt fallen world, certain things are seen to be virtues. Maybe not too many people have them, but they believe they are virtues. And, and when you see the politicians talking, they're talking about various virtues that people would agree that if somebody actually had these things, they would indeed be virtues. And one of them would be that you can be trusted with somebody else's money and not be caught with any kind of wrongdoing or self-aggrandizement or what have you. So it's true that it's honorable in the sight of men to behave honorably in regard to money. And... And there's a built-in suspicion in the fallen society around us that people who are Christians or preachers are after people's money. They just think that. Even if it's not true, that's the first place they want to go. I remember in 74, I'd been a Christian for three years. And in 1974, I was working, I was working a job at... Penny's credit office, uh, where we sent out charge cards, and I was also going to North Central Bible College. And that was the year that Billy Graham held a crusade at the University of Minnesota, 1974. So that was the talk at the lunch table every day, you know, because it was in the paper. Billy Graham was in the paper, in the paper, in the paper. Big deal, Billy Graham is making uh, or having a crusade. Well, he, these guys... And I had just read about Billy Graham, that he was, at that point, I think his salary was really small for somebody with that much worldwide fame. And, and it was one of the things that, that could not be said about Billy Graham was that he was motivated by money. But those guys, that was the first place they went. Nope, no use listening to him, he's just after everybody's money. Yeah, he's after everybody's money, and they're going around and around with that. Of course, I was getting upset with them because I was a Christian and... and, and so the discussion about Billy Graham's money, and finally I, I jumped in, and I said, what are you talking about? I said, he could make more money than he's making now if he just, back then, Joe DiMaggio was selling Mr. Coffee, coffee pots. Show how old I am. <laughs> Some of you remember that. I said, I said, he could sell coffee pots like Joe DiMaggio and make more money than, he's, than he takes from this ministry, and that's not true. It's just flat out not true. And I said, and besides that, I think I know what the issue is. I think I know why you guys don't like Billy Graham. Why is that? I said, because his preaching is a rebuke to all your sinning, and you know you should repent, and you don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) And they shut up. Literally, literally. But after I said that, they just kind of said, well, did the twins win? (laughs) 
<laughs> they went off to some other topic. I didn't hear more about Billy Graham. They were just trying to not want to have to listen to what he was saying. Yes. And one, what's interesting in this comment, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he's talking to the Corinthians about money and about somebody else that's actually taking the money to Jerusalem. And when he was in Corinth, he didn't take a nickel from the Corinthians. He himself said, I worked day and night to support myself. I didn't take a nickel from you, so nobody could say that I was taking a nickel from you, so nobody would even have the potential to yeah. fall into scandal. My goal is saying my goal is money because I didn't take a cent from you. Yeah, knowing the fact that the Corinthians were as they were, which is willing to listen to people that were trying to discredit Paul and his gospel, he was unwilling to have them support him at all because they had one more false charge that they're trying to level, even though we affirm that the laborer has a right to be taken care of on the grounds that in the Old Testament God takes care of the ox and who treads out the grain, so therefore the, the person who's preaching the gospel can be as, as important as the ox. Okay, now, 1 Timothy 3, 7, concerning qualifications for elders. Oh, and then um, Patrick wants to say something when we get, get a chance. 1 Timothy 3, 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so they may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil, falling into reproach. The verse before that says, not a new convert lest he become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. So there's concern about reproach and condemnation so the person cannot be a new convert and cannot have some, be someone who has a bad reputation with people outside of the church because they're living in a way that's not reputable. Yes? So what about, I'm thinking of a case where uh, someone has a, a, a sin or a bad teaching that they then repent of and uh, say they're in, the tr- in a church and the church goes through a process with them and they, and they repent of that sin and they show that they're actually truly repentant. Yeah. Can that person still no longer be put in charge of certain things because they are not honorable in the eyes of men? Well, I think if you take the two passages together, the new convert and the honorable, I think the person who had been dishonorable but repented should be considered analogous to a new convert at that point. In other words, we want to see a track record going on into the future. And after so long, if the person obviously really has repented and is living an honorable life, it may be a whole different story. But yet in the eyes of men, they are dishonorable. Well, at least some men. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Well, suppose they are. Well, what I'd say. well yeah, he, he gives the example of Colson, although we have some theological disagreements with him. He was a guy who was about as dishonorable as anybody could be. But after he was converted, not right away, I think that happened in the 70s, right? Yeah, he's, he's very highly regarded. I heard an interview on public radio, one of the workers had it on when they were putting windows in our house, with Al Kui, remember him? And he was part, he was part of, the, of the story of how Colson came to the Lord. And Al Kui is another guy who is just considered totally honorable by people from whoever they may be. There were Democrats and Republicans calling in saying how much they appreciated Al Kui, and they were talking about the Colson story. So it is possible to change your reputation 
by God changing you. <laughs> okay, yes. There are certain sins like adultery and, and those that would disqualify permanently, I believe. Yeah, that's true. Well, Paul talks about, he says, I buffet my body, and unless after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay? So I, I've often wondered about that. You see these cases where, how would you say it? We shouldn't look at, at being an elder as a career that we have to have. All right? And there was a case here in the Twin Cities from a fairly famous church where this guy who was writing books and doing counseling and was very, very well known uh, committed adultery, left his wife, ran off with another woman, okay, brought scandal to the ministry. So what's he do? He relocates out to another state and starts up a new ministry. You know, with this new wife that he was illegal that he took. And the, what does that say? It says to me that his ministry isn't a service to the body of Christ, it's his career. That's what it's saying. Well, this is how I make my money. So I've got to go do it in some regard. And it becomes more important than the reputation of the gospel. All right, now let's get, look at our verse here, verse 21. Have, we, have regard, regard for what is honorable. The word in the Greek, call out, means good or proper. The word for have regard, um, pronoeo, means to foresee or to think ahead. To foresee or think ahead. And um, Lao and Nita, uh, Greek lexicon, says this, quote, about this word. Pro noeo, from noeo to, to know, and pro for, to foreknow, foresee. And it says this to give attention beforehand, to have in mind what to do, to have foresight. So therefore, Paul having foresight that if Paul took all of that money himself, without anybody else traveling with him, and carried it around the Mediterranean basin until he ended up with it in Jerusalem, that that would be lacking foresight about what might actually happen. Okay, That that could very easily discredit the gospel, even if Paul actually did nothing wrong. So how do we apply that in the church today? Well, there's been scandals here in the Twin Cities and local areas in the last 20, 30 years that made it into the papers. Uh, there was one case where this famous preacher was found having spent $93,000. Wayne knows about this one. Remember this story? The guy over there in a the campus. He had all this money that he spent. And then somebody said, you can't. This, we didn't authorize you to spend his money. He said, I'll do whatever I want. And that was the end of a whole church. Just, the scandal was so great. There's another case where the, I believe the pastor's wife or somebody like that was in charge of the money, and not, it wasn't that big of a church. And there's 150,000 missing from the church. So how do you foresee these sort of things? Well, the way you foresee in order to make sure things are honorable is you have a system of checks and balances that are always in place where one person couldn't get by with doing that. All right. One of the things you do is 
for what we do, by the way, is, is elders, different elders count the offering. Yeah, multiple elders count the offering, and they have accounting for what came in. All right? Then it goes to the person who accounts for it and puts it into the bank. But there's two separate sets of records. So if there's ever a discrepancy, it can be proven. That, hey, no, we counted this much, so we want to know that much went into the bank. Another, thing, another way to make sure things are honorable is the person who counts the money and accounts for the money has no authority to sign a check. Can't, can't even sign a check. So it's kind of hard to steal money when you can't sign a check. Now, you could get cash. You could try to do some cash, but we, we have that covered. Now, why do that when you're working with honest persons? Well, you keep honest person honest. <laughs> It doesn't hurt to have somebody looking over your shoulder. Okay. Yeah, it's for everybody's protection, for the congregation's protection, for the person who's doing the counting. It's for everybody's protection. Because that's what it means to have foresight about what's honorable. So in Paul's case, we have three quality people, known to be quality people, upright people, gospel-centric people, that are going with Paul, administering the money, so that no discredit could come. Because this is certainly a way Satan is used to discredit the gospel in more cases than one. And it's amazing about not just churches, but any kind of nonprofit. It's amazing how nonprofits, people helping nonprofits, see them as a target to steal money from. Hockey associations. I was in charge of a baseball association. Okay? And. At the end of the year, I, I called for an audit. I, there was a guy who was a businessman who was on our board, and he was a very savvy guy. And I, I told the treasurer, turn the books over to this guy. He's going to do an audit. Well, pretty soon I get a call down at the church, and this guy comes up and says, when I turn the books over, there's going to be $2,000 missing. So... Yeah, he was, a, he was a chaplain, I think, or a pastor. Yeah, he was a pastor. So I said, okay. So I called the board. I said, what do you guys want? They said, we want our money. <laughs> and so we talked to these businessmen. They said, well, we could turn this over to the police, but then that's almost for sure we don't, we're not going to get the money. The fear of the police will produce money. <laughs> so, we, so, so we said, you get us that money back. Or we're going to the police with this case. What do you know? The money came back. And then after that, everybody knew that this thing, they, they didn't know I was going to call for an audit. Okay, so now after that, everybody knows. Don't, but why would you steal money from kids' baseball? I don't know. Humans are corrupt. They, look at these, things, these scandals we've seen in a paper of this nonprofit and nonprofit where money was going where it shouldn't go. Okay, so Paul was not going to allow that to happen. He had foresight, pro noeo, to what is good, kala, in the sight of the Lord, or in the opinion of the Lord. This verse is, by the way, nearly identical in the Greek to Proverbs 3 and verse 4. In fact, I looked it up. If you take the Septuagint, Proverbs 3, by the way, I understand that the Old Testament Masoretic text is Hebrew. But the Old Testament that was quoted most of the time, by the New Testament writers, was the Septuagint. And so the Septuagint gives us somewhat insight about how they use the Bible. 
And Paul basically took this verse with a couple of little additions that don't change the meaning and cites it, or at least alludes to it. It has the same kind of construction, the not only but. So somebody, Larry, could you look up Proverbs 3 and verse 4? I did actually look it up in the Septuagint, and it's got the same wording, uh, same Greek words. Proverbs 3, verse 4. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Yeah, favor and good name in the sight of God and man. A little different in the Septuagint, but that's the gist of it. I have a citation here from Garland. Here's what Dr. Garland says about this passage. The gospel may be scandalous, but his behavior and sincerity must be exemplary to both believers and unbelievers. Too often Christians have brought discredit to themselves and to the Christian faith in the eyes of the world by mishandling donations through fraud or by receiving disproportionately high salaries for their service in the gospel. Paul is sensitive to any charges that he might be guilty of corruption. He therefore bends over backwards to keep everything open and public and to avoid the slightest impression of any self-seeking in all of his ministry, especially with regard to the collection of a substantial sum of money. And that's the point that I think we, should, we haven't mentioned yet here, that we should emphasize what he just said. The gospel itself contains enough scandal. Right? The gospel... In fact, the word scandalon in the Greek is used to describe the message preached. People are scandalized by it. You mean God, the only way God is going to save me is if I believe in a crucified Jewish Messiah? Yes. <laughs> well, that's a scandal. Can't God come up with a better plan than that? So given the fact that our message scandalizes and it takes the grace of God for anybody to hear it, we shouldn't add unnecessary scandal. All right? That's the point. Yes. I think it's worth mentioning. Isn't it true that uh, to be wise in the eyes of others, to be good in, good in the eyes of others, we shouldn't minimize that just because humanity is sinful? You know, our tendency is to think humanity is sinful, therefore I'm only going to care about what God thinks and discount everything that man says. But... The Bible says we shouldn't discount yeah. what man says just because man is sinful because there is a measure of common grace given to all yes. by which men can make right judgments even though they be sinners. Right. And it, so, and so yeah. uh, that's why we have verses like, there is wisdom in the counsel of many in Proverbs. And then this verse here that be upright in the eyes of men. Yes. That's a very good point. And I'm going to mention this as I preach through the Ten Commandments. Think about this. Just about every society that has any sort of civil government has a law against stealing. Is that true? Just about any society that has any kind of a civil government other than total anarchy has a law against murder. All right? So the Ten Commandments, are, as far as ethical guidance, are not unique to Christianity. Okay? What's unique about the Ten Commandments is the first two. Okay? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, nor shall you bow down and worship to any other man-made gods. Okay, having a relationship by faith with the creator God of the universe is unique to Christianity. Having ethical guidance is not unique to Christianity. And it says in Romans 2 that even the lost have a conscience, even though it may be, as Paul says, seared with a hot iron, if they violate it, which 
people do. Now, it's universally considered a good thing to not steal, right? So, therefore, as Patrick was saying, if Christians steal, they're going to bring disrepute. Because everybody knows it's wrong to steal. Now, it isn't that the world isn't full of thievery, but the fact is we still know that it's wrong because there is that common grace that forbears on people to realize that's the wrong thing to do, and they're always outraged when somebody does it, unless it's their own self. Okay. I'm going to ask, ask a question. What do we do as Christians relative to this election coming up, and how is this, you know, on the endorsing of candidates from the church, and what is the difference between Christianity's message and the message of a politician, and what, what should we do? All right. We, uh, we did talk ahead of time that we wanted to bring that up. I cheated so, a little bit. He's a plant. Keith is a plant. I was a plant. In he's a plant. All right. You've probably seen the news that there are some who are wanting to fight for the right to endorse candidates from the pulpit. All right? And that's what they're doing. Now, when I saw that, I'll tell you, I'm going to give you my opinion. All right? Why would I even want to do that? If the IRS sent me a letter tomorrow saying you can endorse any candidate you want, why would I want to get up in the pulpit where the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to be preached and tell other people who they should vote for? Because if I have to do that, then that proves that I haven't been teaching the Word of God very well. Because if the Word of God has been taught with clarity and vigor then God will use that to renew people's minds. And a person with a renewed mind is capable of deciding between good and evil, right and wrong, and what have you. All right? And I would trust those people to go vote. Secondly, secondly, here's another reason why I wouldn't do that. I don't trust these politicians. All right? And... I don't want to tie the gospel to one of them. Okay? So if I'm known, if I'm known as a proclaimer of the gospel, which I, I would, above anything else, I can't think of a greater honor to be known for. I want to be known as a proclaimer of the gospel. That's, nothing could be more exciting than that. Now, if that is how I'm known, and I'm saying, now you should vote for this person, I just tied the gospel to somebody. And if that person, unbeknownst to me, turns out to be a scoundrel, well, then why bring that kind of disrepute to the gospel? Now, I realize that some people are, I mean, they're, they're, they believe that they're noble-minded, and I'm not judging the motives of the pastors that want to do this, but I just don't get it myself. I honestly don't get it. But what did Jesus do? Give us an illustration. Okay, okay. All right. There's my plant. This is a little foreshadow of the sermon, but I, I don't want to spend a lot of time, sermon time, on this aspect of it. Let's make an application. Luke 13. This is going to be my sermon. Yeah, so this is the application of the sermon you won't hear upstairs. Yeah. Because I, I called Keith and I told him this application that I saw in there. And he said, I want you to put it in your PowerPoint. I said, nope, not going to do it. Because the main point is repentance, and I don't want people's mind to go somewhere besides repentance onto politics. It's still a good one. So I agreed to do it in Sunday school. All right? So here's 
application number four that's not going to be on the PowerPoint. <laughs> now, this one is amazing, and I, I have to give credit to Kenneth Bailey for pointing this out. Fantastic books that he's written about the Middle East and how the Gospels can be seen through Middle Eastern eyes. And he has one called Through Peasant Eyes, where he has commentary on Luke 13. Now look at verse 1. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now I may quote some from Bailey in my sermon, but Bailey pointed this out. And he spent most of his life in Lebanon teaching. He was in Egypt, Lebanon. He knows how the Middle East works. He says, this sort of story circulates all the time whether it actually happened or not. Okay? He said, whenever you have these Middle East flare-ups and these these tribal disputes, atrocity stories abound. Some are true, some aren't. But he says, one thing you hear always is atrocity stories. So Jesus has been told an atrocity story. And this is a major one. This would be analogous to, and I may do some of this in my sermon as well, this would be analogous to a bunch of people working for the government coming in with machine guns and mowing people down while they're taking communion. That's what happened. If, if indeed it's a historical event. They reported this. It's not known from any other reports for Josephus, but maybe it did happen. But Jesus doesn't stick with it. He goes somewhere else. All right. Now, the point of an atrocity story is to stir up political outrage. Okay? So this pilot did the most outrageous thing, the most desecrating thing, the most wicked thing, the most anti-Jewish thing that anybody could imagine, and they report it to Jesus. Why? Well, because they expect he's going to do something about it. At the very least, he's obligated to express his outrage about what happened. And what does Jesus do instead? Verse 2, he answered and said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered his fate? He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What? They didn't, there's no indication from their report that they wanted to talk about who's a greater sinner. Jesus raised that topic. They didn't. They wanted to talk about politics. They want to talk about this wicked, evil pilot. Jesus was on, I'm practicing my sermon ahead of time. Jesus is on a road to Jerusalem where he's going to end up being judged by Pilate, where he's going to be rejected and killed. And Jesus points to their own sin and need to repent. He didn't, he didn't pick up the bait to go into politics. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. (laughs) Look at what's going on in the world. Look at all the things that are happening to the stock markets and the world governments coming together saying we've got to do something. Obviously, you can see the globalism on the horizon, right? And and we can read about that in, in Bible prophecy, so we can see where that's going. We have a political, just unbelievable situation going on, and I don't know who to trust, frankly. I am not sure who to trust. Uh, Probably nobody. The Lord. (laughs) Okay, I trust the Lord. So therefore, 
I think this is a good message. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Unless you repent, something worse than losing your stock will surely happen. Okay. Try. I say, as Christians, we need to be associated with the gospel and repentance and faith, not with a political party. Not, it's nothing wrong with voting, but our association needs to be with the gospel. Yes, let me tell you my position on this. I believe that Christians have the liberty in the Lord to avail themselves of whatever rights or privileges are accorded them by the secular civil government they live under. Paul did that himself. We have precedent for that. Paul, being a Roman citizen, had a right to appeal to Rome. That had been granted to him by Rome. Okay? God ordains the civil governments. Romans 13. So Paul, being under a civil government ordained by God, even though it was a wicked government, used his right of appeal to go to Rome. Now, why did he do that? Because he wanted to preach the gospel to Caesar's household. <laughs> he was going to get a free trip um, and to testify for the gospel. So I would say this. How do we apply that to America? We have been accorded by the civil government that God providentially put us under certain rights, responsibilities, and privileges. And Christians should avail themselves of those as they see fit. That includes the right to vote, includes the right to redress of grievances in civil court of law, and includes the right to pay taxes, no more, the obligation. <laughs> it includes the obligation to pay taxes, and it includes the obligation to live the best we can as good citizens wherever we may be. So I urge you as Christians, to take this verse to heart that we're studying, 2 Corinthians 8.21, and have regard for what is honorable in sight of the Lord and in the sight of men. And to live as honorable citizens, to vote, to pay your taxes, to use your renewed mind to decide about what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's false and what's, what's honorable and what's dishonorable, what's trustworthy and what's not. And in many cases, you may not have an option of anything honorable and trustworthy to vote for. Well, then, there's always the clothespin. <laughs> but that's just the world we live in. And I will not endorse political candidates because I'm not tying the gospel to a fallen man who may discredit it. Yes. Yeah, you know, uh, here lately there's been a lot of stuff on that, even on the Christian channels, and one of them uh, had spoken and said something that, you know, who's is God with the Republicans or is God with the Democrats? But he reversed it and said, well, who's on God's side? And where do they line up? Because, you know, there's depending on the argument, you know, you could be one side or the other. Abortion is most likely Republican and social justice most likely a Democrat. But... You know, who's on God's side? Who lines up with God? Because it isn't, you know, government gyra we're looking for. It's Jehovah gyra. Okay, let me, let me talk about providence. This is, the doctrine of providence is not, mis, not understood nearly well enough by most Christians. Providence is very, very important doctrine. Providence is how God runs his universe as he sees fit. Providence... It contains good and evil. God raises up the rulers. God draws the boundaries of nations. The nations of, of whose boundaries are drawn 
are wicked nations. The rulers that God raises up often, most of history, they've been wicked rulers. When Paul wrote Romans 13, Nero was a wicked ruler, but yet he was in charge of a civil government. What we mix up is God's revealed will or moral will and God's providential will. And when we mix that up, then we begin to think ways that aren't accurate. I had an interesting email from South Africa. And it shows me that we're not much different than people around it. It's almost identical to how Americans would think. Okay? This email was saying that somewhere back in their history in South Africa, there were some guys, uh, I'm not going to get this perfectly accurate, they were, called, they, they, they were called trekkers, some sort of trekkers. And they were outnumbered. They were going to have a battle with native peoples. And they were outnumbered, and they, and, then, and they prayed, and they told God that if they could win this battle, they would make a holiday and a covenant and keep that from then on. This is just a rough story that I heard from this guy. And so, sure enough, they win the battle, even though they were hugely outnumbered. Well, this, now what people were saying, because now you fast forward how many hundreds of years, I don't know when that happened. They're saying, now, if we would just keep this holiday and honor that covenant that God would save our country. And, and so he says, I don't think that's right theologically, but would you respond to it? This guy emailed me. And I said, this, this just sounds like America. It's absolutely the same thinking is that we have a covenant with God because um, these people that came over claimed that America was the new Israel and they were going to be like Moses and they were going to make a covenant with God. But see, that's mistaking providential will for moral will. Providentially, one group wins a battle and another one loses it. But we cannot thereby take that, and if we're the winner, say, God morally approves of me, and he disapproves of the people I just defeated. Because we're all sinners. All right? So providence is in moral will. Now, here's another thing about covenants. Because that email from South Africa really clicked something in my mind about this. If you're going to have a covenant with God, I have one question for you. Does God have to agree to it? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, so if God has to agree to it, who agreed to the covenant on God's behalf? Let's take those trekkers. They made a covenant with God. Well, who was speaking for God? Was there an Elijah? Was there an Elisha? Was there a Moses? Who was the guy on the face of the earth who was an infallible spokesperson for God who says, on God's behalf, I agree to this covenant? Nobody. So now we have a theology where we can make a covenant that we thought up, we draw out the terms, we decided the promises, and obligated God to keep it without God ever having agreed to it. Now, I argued with, I told a guy who's a radio host guy once, he says, yep, America has a covenant with God. I said, what? where? See, what we're saying is that God's part doesn't matter. We can obligate God to keep a covenant we dreamed up that God never agreed to. Now, I'd like to see somebody's theology explain how that works. Okay, go ahead. Well, I'm going to apply the same concept now to the fact that the pastors believe that they can endorse a candidate. I think it's the question of money. I know that God's moral will, revealed will, is that Christians obey the government that they've put over them. Uh-huh. God's put over us the government, 
And if you want not to pay taxes as a church, you have the right, the, the possibility, and the privilege to sign up under this code and get your tax status there so you don't have to pay taxes. And in that code it says you do not have the right to endorse candidates. It's mm-hmm. not in the Bible, but God's moral will is telling us to obey the laws of the state. Right. The state tells us that. And the providential will is revealed it, by what the state by made the as state, a law. By the state says. Right. And now, if I as a pastor say, bugger that, I'm going to endorse a candidate anyway, you have the right and the privilege to say, I'm not going to be a 5013C. I'm going to pay taxes so I can say whatever I want to because the government gives me that right. Yeah, I don't true. see God saying you can disobey the government anytime you want to because you feel like it. Good point. And, and there are people that are parachurch type things who are not necessarily churches who, who've done just that. I know one, by the way, Brandon House told me, he, he set up as a prophet, for profit his worldview weekend because he wants to talk about politics. Well, fine. Then he can talk, and he does. So, so fine, you can do that. But you can't take the one privilege and say, I'm going to disobey it because I know better than the civil government got. Yeah, right. It's interesting you're saying with how many people claim that America has the, this covenant with God. And I think even on our own bulletins a few times, I've seen this verse, the Psalm 33:12, Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. And uh, it's often quoted as, okay, well, the God of America is, is the Lord. And therefore, you know, we're blessed because okay. he's our Lord. And then it goes on to say, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And, well, that's assuming that God's chosen us, whereas if you were to read the verse rightly, it's speaking it's of Israel. It's talking about Israel. So it, it yeah. really can't be applied Here, to here's, us. Here is a theological breakthrough, a huge theological breakthrough. Listen carefully. America is not Israel. Whoa. <laughs> You know, America is not Israel. No, but, but the thing about the South Africa is we're, there's nothing unique about thinking like we do. All right? There are a lot of countries that feel they have special status with the God of the Bible. And there are, lot, there are European countries that have state churches. Uh, it's not unique, but we just need to get our theological categories right. I'm thankful for America. I'm a conservative. I'm patriotic. I love the country that we live in. I love the freedom to preach the gospel. I think we have a wonderful country, and God has blessed us providentially to be here and to have the opportunities that we have in this country. But I do not believe that we have a covenant status the same way Israel does. Because God never agreed to the covenant, and he can't do that. You can't obligate a God to man's covenant. Okay. Uh, whether these pastors want to, what they want to speak out in the pulpits is right or wrong, I think the, the issue might actually be one of free speech in the Constitution. And you look at the other side, the liberal side of the church is, is speaking politics all the time, and there is no uh, consequence for that. So. Yeah. If they want to fight that battle, that's their business. But I, I still would rather preach the gospel, and I don't want to fight the battle. I want to preach the gospel. That's, that's my concern. And, and the other reason is... As I said before, let me reiterate, if I do endorse somebody and that person turns out to be a scoundrel, then I'm allowing him to bring discredit to the gospel. And I don't want to do that. Okay? 
Uh, it's with, I have to read a lot of somebody's theology before I'll endorse them. So how am I going to endorse them? I mean, I'll endorse John MacArthur <laughs> as a theologian. But I've read his works and listened to his sermons, so I know I can endorse him as a theologian. But I'm not, I don't know enough about some politician what he's going to do. In fact, if history is any guide, I think we do know what they're all going to do. Not so good. Well, we've come out and run out of time, so we had that little discussion. So now you all know that you have to figure out for yourself who you're going to vote for. All right. Let's, uh, let's uh, put away the chairs. We'll see you upstairs at 1030.